0: An Linny
1: Bruce is not I a hurricane, to world, its own Dummy, your own Hello, welcome to rising with the tide. My name is Skander. As always, I'm joined by Jamie. Hello, Jamie. hello. how are you doing?
0: I'm doing good. I'm I am free now. Yes, I've you completed my dissertation done and it, it's it. it congratulations uh, I'm, not I'm not ready I'm not ready
1: Yeah I uh, I had a I was one of the very select few people who managed to mm. get a read mm. of Jamie's dissertation and I must say I was absolutely baffled. I was really impressed I, I'm I'm very proud of, of you Jamie. It's uh, on Gramsci and Apple and it's uh, worker education mm-hmm. it's really interesting
0: stuff. Well, I'll get my grade before the episode's out, so we can cut that in.
1: Yeah, maybe we should do an episode, actually, where we interview you about this topic. That would be fun. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Today, we're joined by Bill McGuire, Professor of Geophysical and Climate Hazard at UCL, who's an expert in volcanoes and everything geophysical. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us. How are you today?
2: Oh, very well, and thanks for letting me join you.
1: No, it's a it's a pleasure to have you. Um, So... I guess we'll start maybe a little bit about you um from you know your general bio online um people could find out that you were a uh, 2010 member of the scientific advisory group for emergencies for the government uh you were contributing author of the 2011 ipcc report a member of lancet ucl as well commission on the health effects of climate change and um You've also presented a few series as well on B- uh, BBC Radio 4 and Channel 5 um, Sky News. That's a lot of really impressive stuff. And you have a couple of books out as well? I do, yes. I have my
2: my latest non-fiction book is called Waking the Giant. That looks at the relationship between climate change and the solid earth and how it can climate change can actually trigger uh, hazardous geological events. But I've got out on a limb for my latest one. It's my debut novel, um, it's Spicy, mm-hmm. and it's called Seed*, and it's an eco-thriller about climate change engineering gone wrong.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> That's super interesting. A
2: swimming roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I'm, I'm uh, very excited to, to get my hands on it then, because I, one of the things I've always talked about, um, that I, I can't remember who, I'm very sorry you're listening and this was you, but someone out there in the climate change community said something like, we are missing stories about climate change. We're missing stories of... Uh, avoiding or surpassing disasters mm. and threats and a story about how we get ourselves out of this mess. And I think it's so important for people to get that narrative hope, in a sense. A story um, yeah,
2: stories are much better at getting messages across than facts yeah. and figures. Unfortunately, Sky Seed isn't about how we get out of the mess, it's just how we get deeper into it.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, hey, it's uh, it can a be cautionary. cautionary tale. Tale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So we'll start maybe by just um, I think I'd like to get to the book uh, at some point in this episode, but I would really like to talk about volcanoes because that's what you're an expert on, and we've never had a volcanologist before on the podcast. We've had hydrologists, we've had cl- general kind of climate scientists, mathematicians, but we've never been able to talk about volcanoes. I I saw today in the news that um, actually the Spanish Canary Island of La Palma has been just received an evacuation notice. Uh, so I think maybe it might be a, a good way to kind of start this topic. Could you tell us a little bit about um, maybe, I don't know if you've, if you've been following this uh, volcano, but in general, what the process of prediction around volcano hazards and, and actually like tackling the effects of it. How does that, what takes place, I guess?
2: Well, not only am I following the story, but it was my research team that identified this volcano as unstable And we monitored it in the 1990s in the early 2000s because the whole west flank of the volcano is slowly sliding seawards. So there is this potential in the future of a major landslide, uh, which is capable of triggering a a huge tsunami. Um, We don't expect it in this eruption, um, but we can never say the chances are zero. Um, In terms of the activity we're seeing at the moment, it's pretty normal for this volcano. It's erupted before in, 1949 in 1971. And it's generally a lava producing eruption. So there's not much explosive activity. So it's clearly very damaging to the people that that live there. And the thing to remember is this eruption is occurring right in the middle of a a built up area, effectively. But we don't expect any massive explosive events as we've seen, for example, with uh, the A.F. Yaloyochl in 2010 um, and some of these other volcanoes. So it's spectacular looking imagery Devastating for the people that live there. But unless the whole thing does collapse this time, uh, not a huge event on the scale of volcanic eruptions.
1: I'd seen that one of the major um, risks, uh, you know, when people hear about volcanoes, I guess they probably immediately think of lava, 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 <laughs> just a lot of orange, red, yeah. crazy burning stuff. But as far as I remember reading in this uh, newspaper, uh, today, the one of the main risks is the um, the gas created by a um, interaction between, like the volcano and the water. Could you maybe just expand a little bit? Yeah, I think
2: you can. I mean, you can get chlorine gases uh, produced as seawater is is uh, comes into contact with magma. You can also get significant explosive. Uh, blasts, not huge eruptions, but uh, localised blasts, so that if you're nearby, you, know, you, you could easily be killed by, by one of these things. And we've seen it before when lavas from Hawaii enter the sea, you get these, uh, obviously water and magma don't aren't uh, friends, if you like, and you do get these localised explosions. So it's, you know, there is an issue with gases as this material enters the sea, there is an issue with small-scale explosions, but to avoid that problem, you just really need to keep people away from any areas where the lava and the sea are interacting.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, is, there, is there a major link that you've found in, in your studying of this volcano or it's um, not eruption, but it's kind of activation uh, between that and climate change that we're seeing around the world?
2: Um, not this specific volcano, but there does seem to be a climate link between the timing of very large collapse events of volcanoes and climate change. And it looks as if big col- collapses capable of generating tsunamis occur when the climate is warm and wet. Because the, if you've got high levels of, of ground, ground water, if magma rises up into, those, into that water at high levels, then it can push off chunks of the volcano. So there is this link mm-hmm. between um, the sort of climate that we're getting into today, in fact, um, the anthropogenic climate change and big collapses of volcanoes. So that's something in general terms that we need to be aware of. Um,
0: yeah. So it's, it's just the general idea is very interesting. And I, I wonder because the general sort of perception of natural disasters, I think are, are as, you know, um, awful, but sort of very natural and, and inevitable occurrences. Uh, what made you sort of first suspicious that there was a, uh, there was a more direct relationship between climate change and these geological disasters?
2: Um, well, it's the, the idea of this link between climate and natural hazards, is, is not, geological hazards, is not new. Um, you can mm. go back to the period, for example, at the end of the last ice age when um, the great ice sheets melted, sea level rose 130 metres. And there are loads of examples then of Um, that activity triggering earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. And one of the best examples is when the Scandinavian ice sheet melted and Mm -hmm. you took the weight of three kilometres of ice off the crust. There were faults sitting underneath there that hadn't ruptured for tens of thousands of years. So you then had this burst of magnitude, eight earthquakes, the sort of things you'd expect to see around the Pacific Rim, huge earthquakes in Lapland. And one of those triggered a big summary landslide, the Storiger slide, which sent waves 20, 30 metres high across the UK and down into the North Sea. So that's a lovely example of the link between climate change in the past and hazards today. You saw the same thing with Iceland when it lost its ice, lots of volcanoes, which couldn't get any magma up before, starting to erupt again. And um, personally, I made the connection when I did my PhD, which was on Mount Etna in Sicily. And I worked on a big collapse structure on the eastern flank of the volcano, and it became apparent that that collapse was generated during a particularly wet period about 7,000 years ago, and it was triggered by the intrusion of magma into very wet rock, and that promoted steam, and the steam helped to shove off the side of the volcano, the pressure of the steam. And that's that was my first recognition of a, of a climate volcano link. And we went on, and we had a big um, European grant, in fact, to... Look at the relationship between sea level change in the Mediterranean and volcanic activity, and there's a nice correlation between how quickly sea level's been going up and down in the last 80,000 years and and the intensity of volcanism, because many of the volcanoes in the Mediterranean are islands or they're located on the coast, and as you raise and lower sea level, you change the stress regime near those volcanoes or beneath those volcanoes, and. Uh, when sea levels change very dramatically, you tend to trigger eruptions. Very dynamic situation. So the more you look, the more you see about you know, how climate change and the solid earth interact very, very closely and in all sorts of different ways.
1: Yeah, and some, uh, I guess, you know, we learned from a pretty young age that uh, about tectonic plates and and things like that, and um, about ge- like the basics, let's say, of geological hazards. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys are much further from that point, um, but. What, um, are, are there like specific changes in the climate that would put some countries that maybe have not classically had things like earthquakes more at risk? Yeah,
2: well, I think what the most worrying place for, for me is Greenland. Mm-hmm. Greenland today is in exactly the same situation Scandinavia was 20,000 years ago. In a three-kilometer ice sheet It's melting very rapidly now, and it's melting so rapidly that that whole North Atlantic region uh, is now uplifting. GPS data show that the whole region right across the North Atlantic is bouncing back as that ice starts to melt. Now, Greenland has been covered in ice for a couple of hundred thousand years at least. So if there are faults underneath there, those faults have been accumulating strain for massive lengths of time. And as you take the load off, as you take the ice off, those faults are gonna start to move and they have the potential to trigger huge earthquakes, which again can trigger submarine landslides, can trigger tsunamis in the North Atlantic. Um, I have some German colleagues working on this particular area and they talk about a possible um, seismic response in the Greenland area within decades, possibly. So we might start to see increased seismic activity there relatively soon. So that's a worry for the whole region, really. Greenland obviously has a very small population, 50,000 people or so, but if you start to trigger these submarine landslides and the tsunamis, then you're affecting an area of tens of millions, hundreds of millions, potentially.
1: Yeah, Norway. <laughs> and Norway, <Yes>. yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I your,
2: your flat's quite high up, your, your new flat. You
1: know. No, yeah, no, it's uh, it's very close to the the city centre, which is basically water uh, level. Um, but yeah, (laughs) it's okay, it's only for two years. Uh, Greenland can hold for two years, yeah. About about Greenland, uh, recently you were quoted in the FT in the Financial Times as uh saying that the biggest threat in the North Atlantic's uh, Atlantic comes from the thinning of the Greenland uh, ice cap. You, I've seen a little, a few kind of replies, not just to this, but to a few other things, I guess, and just in general that you've worked on or, or have spoken about, um, calling you an alarmist. And that's something that you've interacted with. I know that you've um, kind of, in a sense, I get the feeling that you have simultaneously rejected and embraced the moniker in a sense, rejected the, the kind of connotation, but also embraced this idea that you are sounding an alarm, that you are wanting to have yeah. people look at the evidence and, and and indeed be slightly worried because that's, you know, we need worry <laughs> to be able to act.
2: I think we need to be more than slightly worried about (laughs) climate breakdown, to be honest. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm raising an alarm in terms of of climate breakdown, global heating, because we now know, effectively, that we can't avoid a a 1.5 degree C global average temperature rise. I mean, there is no realistic way we can get there at the moment. Um, I think we all know that we need a 45% cut in emissions by 2030 to give us any chance. And I, I noticed the latest UN report suggests that we're on a track to a 16% increase. So we're not even remotely near um, coping with this. So, yes, I raise the alarm as much as I can. In, in terms of things like if I say in an interview that uh, we we expect a seismic response within decades and that in the newspapers then translated into we can expect a tsunami within decades, then clearly people do regard that as alarmist. But quite often the things that you say aren't translated into text because, of course, the newspapers like to sell copies and uh so they will hype things up inevitably
1: yeah do you think there's i mean do you think it's just that or is there also just a, a misunderstanding uh, like a quite basic misunderstanding
2: well i mean that you know you can say it's a misunderstanding but but there've been many cases where i've said things pretty clearly and and then the headline is something totally different yeah it's, it's not you know they're there to sell papers I mean, obviously, this isn't the case with all newspapers, but there are plenty in the UK that don't really care about what they yeah. write, as long as it's set.
1: We had, a, we had a, a really interesting conversation with Nicholas Boers, uh, a climate uh, scientist, last week. And he was telling us the story of um, when he talked about the EMOC and the newspaper. He could tell that the, the journalist had not really understood what he was talking about. And so he mentioned, he said, please, like, I I see that you keep asking about the Gulf Stream and and, it breaking down. Like, please do not write that the Gulf Stream is breaking down because that's not what I'm saying. And then the next day, the headline was Gulf Stream (laughs) breaking down. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, that's, uh, I'm really interested in the communication science aspect and i think you've done quite a bit of work on that as well as how to um, from what i've seen of your, your your published works on the actual communication of these um these findings have you managed to find a better way let's say or, or like have you i don't know a sort of method or or habit or something to to make it easier to communicate your findings uh in a, in a more i guess in a way they'll be represented properly.
2: Well, I mean, it, it's it's, rel- it's relatively straightforward. but I find the best way is to, if, if a journalist wants to speak to you, say seven your questions, and then you actually reply in writing to those questions. Right. Because then it's not as easy for them to to sort of have you say something you didn't say. You have got it there in black and white. So you know, a simple thing, but but that's the way I've you know the best way to do it. The trouble is if you're giving a talk, as I was. A couple of weeks ago, the British Science Festival, you don't have, you know, they grab you at the end and say, can we talk to you? They stick a tape recorder on, ignore everything on the tape recorder, obviously, when they're running. Um, but you, know, they're, you can't really, it doesn't really help there. Hmm. But I think the written word is is the way to communicate, to be honest, to make sure that your your point of view gets out there accurately.
1: Yeah. But well, that's quite sad in a sense that, that we have to resort to that and that we can't have um, serious, honest conversations around climate science, for example, with uh, between the media and scientists and the public. like There seems to be a little bit of a breakdown then.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is sad, and it isn't all, all media outlets by any means. But the particular outlets that, that are not reliable have been like this ever since the papers were founded. <laughs> to be honest, they haven't changed. It's always been their outlet, right. and that's the way they still are. It is sad, but they're not going to change. Uh, anytime soon, I think. Um,
0: I wonder how how much this sort of accepting the the role climate change plays in these geological dis- disasters. How much that has been accepted by your peers and by the scientific community, and if it has, I, I imagine that would have many benefits in uh, predicting geological hazards but I guess that would kind of require the general embrace of this model.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I've had to say a number of times, to people, this isn't my theory. This, this, this is fact. And it was well established a long time ago that if you change the climate dramatically and rapidly, then you will get a geological response. That is not a matter of being accepted. That is just, you know, that's just part right. of the geological literature. That's just well established. Um, I think that the, the key part is how, what sort of link you're going to have with anthropogenic climate change as we go forward, rather than the established links that have already been determined. Um, and that's a difficult area. I mean, there are places like Greenland where you, you can see how the relationship can develop, but there are other places around the world where it's not obvious. I mean, if you look at earthquakes, for example, I have a colleague who works on these major forts in Southeast Asia, and he says... Um, if that fault is primed and ready to go, all you need to set it off is a pressure of a handshake. So that tells you that you know, around the world, if you have faults that are, are ready to go, ready to rupture, then you know, a small change in sea level or even things like atmospheric pressure from uh, powerful tropical cyclones, all these things can set them off. But you can't really identify that. You know, you can't say that was um, a particularly severe storm that reduced air pressure and set that uh, earthquake off. It's very difficult to do, but it's perfectly possible. There's a great example in Alaska, there's a volcano called Pavlov, and that tends to erupt in the winter and autumn months when low pressure weather systems cross the area and they allow sea level to rise locally by about 10 centimetres. And the extra load of that 10 centimetres on one side of the volcano, sort of bends the crust yeah, underneath really. and squeezes lava out. What? <laughs> so, you know, that's fantastic example. And there have been a number of papers written on this by uh, a US colleague of mine. And that that just shows you how sensitive um, yeah. geological systems are today to these tiny changes. So when we're talking about metres of sea level change yeah. and when we talk about the huge variations in ice thickness and this sort of thing, it, it's not a surprise if you see a a
1: response at all. That's insane. That's that's uh yeah I, I guess we have trouble maybe as non scientists ourselves at least or in the public to comprehend these like the effect of these small numbers on the kind of bigger um aspects. That's that's really crazy. Um, you you've mentioned actually now that you've mentioned Alaska, I remember you mentioning this in the also I think in the paper saying that um Alaska is the cannery in the coal mine um yeah. would you say that the cannery is still breathing or <laughs> is it lying dead in well, its cage? it's not dead yet not quite but well there are
2: two factors really there's two areas worth having a, a chat about first of all in places in alaska um, there's been a, vert- a loss of one kilometer vertical of ice and where that's happened you see a clear increase in seismic activity so that's a great example of uh, what I was talking about with Greenland in the future and Scandinavia.
1: Sorry, one kilometer since? One kilometer
2: vertical thickness of ice has been lost. But, but
1: since since when? Oh, in the last hundred years. Oh, really? Staggering. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. <laughs> it is, I know. In the last hundred years, wow.
2: In fact, when I, I mean, that was included in uh, in part of my contribution to the, the IPCC report on 2011-2012, uh, and people were Even in that, people said that can't be true, but it's published papers on it. Um, So, you know, that's a nice link we're already seeing with increased seismicity and um, ice loss. But also there's a, a big increase in massive landslides in mountainous areas, because in many cases it's only permafrost and ice that's holding mountain faces together. So as the permafrost thaws and the ice melts, we're getting a lot more of these huge landslides there. And that's now being translated all over the world, because... In the, in the European Alps, in the, um, the Southern Alps, in New Zealand, in the Caucasus, all over the place now, you, you're seeing instability of, of mountain faces increasing, particularly correlatable with heat waves. As heat, mm-hmm. summer heat waves get hotter and longer, more intense, you're seeing much more instability and, and the danger of major um, rock avalanches. I mean, Mont Blanc in uh, Europe now is, is off limits for much of the summer because it's just yeah. too dangerous. So Alaska, yes, it is. We're, you know, we're seeing avalanches there, we're seeing increase in seismicity there, which we may later on see in other parts of the planet.
0: If if some of these geological hazards are caused by uh, changes in the climate and then these ge- geological hazards such as volcanoes can in turn affect the climate, does that pose any realistic risk of some sort of circular... Um, you know, circular feedback, some sort of dangerous chain reaction?
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's something consider, I've thought about as we came out of the last ice age, you would have had a big increase in volcanic activity. And I've thought about that in terms of some of the cooler episodes, because as we came out of the last ice age, it wasn't straightforward. Temperatures rose and they dropped a bit and, uh, at certain times, then they rose again and then dropped again, periods like the Younger Dryas, things like this. And it may have been volcanic activity that, that was resulting in those coolings. Um, So, you know, it is possible, looking ahead, if we get a lot of, a a burst of volcanic activity that pumps a lot of sulphur dioxide into the atmosphere, that we could see cooling as a result of that. But that would be very temporary. You're talking about a couple of years at the most. I mean, people Mm -hmm. do ask me, you know, if we saw that, would that solve the problem of global heating? (laughs) No. (laughs)
1: But yeah, it wouldn't even it wouldn't even tackle uh, ocean acidification really. <laughs> nothing at all. It would do just something. to begin with even. Yeah,
2: but well, you could see that. Um...
1: Yeah. How? Um, I guess uh, one of the things with today, for example, La Palma and uh, other volcanoes around the world. How can we effectively prepare for these volcanic crises? I mean, I I know that you know our instruments are not probably perfect uh, uh, predicting these things, but can you give us an idea of how easily we can predict, or how difficult it is to predict a volcano, volcanoes eruptions, or or volcanic activity in general, or earthquakes? I mean,
2: yeah. Well, um, I mean, there's a big difference between volcanoes and earthquakes. Earthquakes mm-hmm. we cannot predict. Simple as that. No, we can see on a particular fault if there's an earthquake every on average every hundred years because that's how long it takes for the strain to accumulate. Then after one hundred and two years, you you will expect an earthquake roughly around that time but that's not the same as prediction. With volcanoes, if we're monitoring a volcano, we can predict an eruption, start an eruption quite well now because magma needs to break rock to get to the surface. That generates earthquakes and you can monitor the increase in earthquake activity, as happened on the pounder. And in fact, one of my colleagues made a prediction that the eruption would start um, either the day did or up to two days later, and he was spot on looking at the Mm. earthquake activity. Also, magma needs to make space for itself, so the ground swells, you get ground deformation. Um, and you can use accelerating deformation as well to predict the timing. So if you're monitoring a volcano, there's no reason why it should erupt without you knowing about it. The trouble is there are several hundred active volcanoes on the planet, that only 100 or so are being monitored in any decent way. Um, and they're mainly in developed countries. So it's the, it's the volcanoes in, in undeveloped countries, third world countries, et which uh, are the problem. Having said that, we can't really do much about um, identifying or working out how long an eruption is going to last um, or when the climax is going to occur. And that's where most of the damage is caused and loss of life. So there are lots of things we can't predict. Quite good at the timing if we're looking, but not much good at everything else. So there's, there's a long way to go. But in terms of getting people out of the area, if you can predict when a volcano is going to start erupting, then you know that is the main thing. You've got no excuse for getting for not getting people out in time. Then
1: yeah. So then it just becomes more of a um, organizational kind of is. issue, I guess. Yeah, yeah.
2: it is it's exactly that.
1: Yeah, but then I guess hmm, yeah, I I guess also just in general knowledge of the volcano itself, not just when it will erupt, but also its characteristics are pretty right. important. I mean, I remember reading about um, uh, Gongo, I think yeah. is the name of the volcano. Um, I think it's in Congo, but I remember reading uh, this thing on on that geo about how fast the uh, lava, for example, was going and how it would like, I think it was like a few dozen miles an hour, like the lava would really slope down quite fast. And, you know, maybe if you aren't aware of characteristics like that, your plans to uh, manage the volcanic activity can can be quite... um, uh, in peril, <laughs> find themselves in peril.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nairagongo is, is, is very unusual. It has incredibly liquid lavas which flow faster mm-hmm. than any other volcano on the planet. And and it, when you get a lava eruption, it's actually the draining of a, of a high altitude lava lake, so you've got gravity as well pulling the, the lava down. But it's so fast, there are, there are sort of old, old lava flows with elephant footprints in them, for example, so it can overtake running animals and running humans really yeah. but, but with most with most volcanoes you or with many volcanoes they can generate a whole range of hazards and trying to predict mm-hmm. what hazards you're going to get when during an eruptive cycle isn't that easy
1: um, mm-hmm.
2: you can you can get some idea of what sort of hazards you're going to get but when you're going to get them is not that easy sometimes a volcano will erupt um, with its climax right at the beginning in the first couple of days and then die down again others you can have, two months, three months, four months of activity, and then wham, you get the big one. So it's it's, it's not easy to do. But certainly mm. from, to get an idea of how a volcano will behave, you study old deposits as so a matter of geology, mapping, this sort of thing, to work out what it's been doing in the past and then say, well, you know, these are the threats for the future.
1: How do you deal with all these uncertainties as a scientist? Do you feel like the field is quite honest about the amount of uncertainty? Because I, we've heard a lot from hydrologists, for example, about how... Uncertain the hydrology field is. I'm not sure comparatively how uncertain uh, geosciences, like the geoscience like study of earthquakes and volcanoes, is. But uh, I guess, yeah, how do you deal with the uncertainty uh, that is kind of set in? Uh,
2: it's not very well, actually. <laughs> I was a senior scientist on Montserrat for the first, it became active in 1995. The first explosive eruptions when I was there in September 96. The, the British government, because it's a British territory, British overseas territory, they didn't even know there were any British volcanologists. So they had Americans in there to start with. They were American scientists who'd been at Pinatubo uh, several years earlier, which was a gigantic eruption in the Philippines in the early 90s. And they were there for a bit, and they saw the swelling and everything else going on. They they said, we're not staying here. If this is like Pinatubo, we're, the whole island will be wiped out. So they left. And then the British government realised there were a British volcanologists, and they, well, we went in there mm-hmm. and, and worked there. But, you know, in retrospect, we were incredibly naive. I mean, the first big explosion in September 96, could what well, if that was Pinatubo size? We didn't even know. We would all be dead. So there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of luck that, not, that more people didn't die as well. And it's sometimes presented as a, a case study of a successful uh, you know, volcanic mitigation programme. And it, that it was just luck. A lot of it was real luck. And I don't think things have changed since then either, to be honest.
1: Yeah, that, that sounds quite scary. But have you have you managed to um, to kind of narrow down the um, the uncertainties within the study of these of these volcanoes, for example? Let's just say volcanoes as an example, because I I, I guess one of the things that climate science is is heavily criticized for a lot is uh, all of the inherent uncertainties of, of like grouping up different sciences, which all have uncertainty and then kind of getting theses out of or conclusions out of this grouping. Do you feel like some, some that we've talked to have said that yes, there is uncertainty, but it always tends to be actually worse than we think it, it is actually. Um, would you agree with that?
2: I think, yeah, volcanology is probably a bit different from climate science. In climate science, I would agree that, Predictions tend to be more conservative than than the reality when, when it actually, when we come to it. And I think there's actually been a book written quite recently examining uh, models from climate scientists and then looking at the reality of what happened. And they are all virtually, virtually everyone is underestimating the scale and speed with which things are progressing. But with, in volcanology, where uh, it's a little bit different because in climate change, you can, you can, you can model things like a temperature rise. Uh, and effects and something in volcanology, you've got a volcano that may have erupted pyroclastic flows, um, big columns of ash, lava flows, um, mud flow, all sorts of things. And then you know it's coming to an eruption you know it's building to an eruption, but you have no idea which of those is going to come and it would, uh, and how big. So it's you know it's huge uncertainty, and I'm not sure it'll be a very long time if ever before we can get on on top of that. I mean, one yeah. of the, it, it is particularly important in things like um, Yellowstone and these. Um, volcanic super eruptions. Yellowstone is a, uh, it's called a restless super volcano. It's always going up and down, it's swelling, it's sliding. Um, and people are always on about it. Oh, What's going to happen next time? Um, well, if we start to see a buildup of, of activity, if we see some serious swelling and uh, earthquake activity, that doesn't mean we're going to have a super eruption. It, it means we're going to have possibly an eruption. It could just be a lava eruption. It could be a very mm-hmm. big eruption. It could be a super eruption. We would have no idea probably until it started. So you know, right. land. What do you do? Evacuate the entire state? Evacuate the area around it? Or well, I mean, it's the country. Difficult. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult at the moment. We we don't know how to do that.
1: Yeah, I want to move on actually to your book, uh, Sky Seed. You say that this is a, kind of like a climate thriller in the sense. Could you tell us a little bit about the plot of the book and? And how you you came up with the the topic? Yeah,
2: I mean it is. You know, although climate change is a big part of it, it's it's a thriller. It's a good story, I hope, I and mean, that's the main that's the main reason for reading it. Although it does carry lots of messages in it, and one of those is mm-hmm. um, intentional messing around with the climate now using technology to try and uh, and sort things out is not a good idea. There's too many options for mistakes for huge impacts on the environment. Um, unforeseen consequences, etc. So that's the message. I don't want to give too much away <laughs> because it's yeah. one of the problems But it, it, <laughs> well, it, well, it involves a technological approach to trying to to bring temperatures down, to bring emissions down, um or to bring carbon concentration in the atmosphere down. It's a clandestine attempt by two countries to do that. So it's a secret mm-hmm. thing on a large scale, which is discovered by. number of scientists. There is also the involvement of a a volcano, which is uh, a key part of the the whole plot. And uh, it hasn't got a very happy ending. (laughs) (laughs) That's about all I can say. (laughs) Makes me want to read it even more. I have left a little bit of room for sequel. Oh,
1: okay. That's quite interesting. That as a as a professor of geophysical sciences and such, you you decided to then talk about uh, geoengineering. I mean, it's from looking at your published papers and such, it's not really a topic that you've concentrated on as much as other scientists have. Have you? Did you kind of have discussions around this topic with other scientists before writing the book, or is this kind of just taken from what you've learned? Uh, on your own? No, I've
2: been, well, I've been, I've not undertaken any research in geoengineering, but I'm, I'm completely up to speed with the various methodologies that have been proposed and, uh, and it's something I feel very strongly about. I mean, it's it a it's a dangerous idea, if only for the fact that if heads of government think that there's a technological solution that they can use, then you can forget any chances of them cutting emissions because they won't do it. Yeah. they think, oh, it's yeah. all right, we can try this. And I'm pretty certain that that COP26 in the science and innovation um, section that this is going to come up time and time again. But it's you know in many cases it's not tackling the problem; it's just tackling symptoms, as as we know. Um, It's massively costly, almost every scheme at scale, anyway. And it's it's just crazy. I really you know it's 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 designed to keep capitalism in the fast lane, is the way I I put it in the Mm. book. Mm-hmm. We can keep we can keep pumping out greenhouse gases because we keep sucking them out. So, uh, or whatever. But it's 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 designed to avoid uh, the sort of changes we need to society to cope with climate breakdown. I think. So it's not a surprise that the fossil fuel companies think it's a great idea. Obviously.
1: Do you think that the actual method is dangerous as well, not just the implications of of using the method, uh, avoiding actual cuts in emissions?
2: Well, I mean, one of the the ones which gets all the news headlines is uh, simulating a volcanic eruption, pumping vast quantities of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, or something similar. I know the sort of impacts that major volcanic eruptions have, including sort of famine, starvation on a huge scale after the 1815 eruption of Tambora, for example. Uh, the last great subsistence crisis in the Western world. Um, the people that talk about these, this solar uh, radiation management say, oh, no, we've modelled it, it's fine. There aren't any negative impacts. I do not believe that for one minute. Oh. Um, it's, and, of course, what's that going to do for ocean acidification? Nothing. What's it going to do in terms of cutting emissions? Nothing. It's just it's mm-hmm. the wrong answer to the wrong question, really. When this sucking, I mean, sucking carbon Directly from the atmosphere. There have been a couple of um, announcements recently about a power plant in a plant in um, Iceland and another one elsewhere that are capable of four thousand tons a year or something. I, I think I it, I said, "Great, we you need another ten million of these things." Yeah, I'm not saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you put it perfectly though. The wrong answer to the wrong question.
2: <laughs> but it's this distraction. I mean, you know, we're not we're not succeeding in getting world leaders. To, to act sufficiently to bring emissions down as the science demands now. If they think there's another solution which doesn't involve having to cut emissions, then we can forget any chance of avoiding one and a half, two, three degrees. I mean, it's just, it's it's a real dangerous distraction, the whole concept of geoengineering.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we're gonna wrap it up on this cautionary tale, but uh, thank you so much, Bill McGuire. Uh, It's been a pleasure to, to have you on the show and to learn from you. We hope to, um, that everybody listening will give a shot. Uh, Sky Sea, the shot. Uh, it's available on Amazon, I think, and on uh, multiple other websites. <laughs>
2: all good bookshops, yeah. <laughs> <heard of us. laughs>
1: yeah, I'll, I'll really uh, I'll look into getting my own copy because you've you've sold me on on the on the eco thriller for sure. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. It's been great fun.